Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 150 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to remind you about our upcoming course with Esther Meek on the topic of covenant epistemology. This class will be from August 13th through 17th here in Birmingham, Alabama. You can click the link down there in the show notes to get more information about this course and to register. Our courses are not only filled with lectures by brilliant scholars, but class times are also punctuated by worship in the morning, noon, and evening. You'll sing dozens of psalms throughout the week, engage in seminar discussion with other students, and share all of your meals together. We really look forward to seeing many of you there. And once again, a link for more information to the class is in the show notes for you. Also, if you register for this course before or on June 21st, you'll receive 10% off of the course price as well as a free gift from us. In this episode, Peter Lighthart is joined by a special guest, Pastor Steve Jeffrey, to discuss the text for the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, or the fifth Sunday of the Trinity season. We hope that you're sharpened and that you enjoy this conversation over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes, as usual. Uh, today we're also joined live by our good friend Steve Jeffrey, uh, Pastor Steve Jeffrey, Dr. Steve Jeffrey. Uh, Steve is the pastor of Emmanuel Evangelical Church in Southgate, uh, which of course is in the northern part of London. Uh, and uh, Steve is on his U.S. tour. Uh, you might catch him in a uh, in a musical venue near. You know, he's doing a sabbatical here in the states for a couple of months, uh, spending the first bit of time in various places speaking. He's going to do some lectures for us tomorrow morning on ethics, which uh, we'll make available to you all at some point, uh, and uh, then visiting other places around the state. So, uh, tremendous to have you with us, Steve, and your first time in Alabama. Indeed, great to be with you. Yeah. So uh, we're going to do the, pod, uh, the regular podcast with the lectionary readings. Uh, these are the readings for the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, which is the fifth Sunday of the Trinity season. In 2018, that's June 24th. And the readings for this Sunday, June 24th, are Job 38, verses 1 through 11, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 13, and Mark 4, verses 36 to 41. And uh, before we prepared, we, we got into a little altercation, Steve and I, uh, <laughs> as we sometimes do. Uh, the last time I was with you, I remember a fairly intense debate about the book of Jonah mm-hmm. on the London Tube, which I very much enjoyed. Right. I don't know if we'll be able to get the same kind of fireworks <laughs> going with these texts, but we'll, we'll make, a, make an effort. Well, we were, we're having a little bit di- difference of opinion about how to organize our discussion. I thought I'd start there. Uh, that'd be a... a uh, uh, maybe an interesting way to get into this and maybe helpful for uh, particularly those of you who might be preaching on the lectionary. Yeah. My thought was that the, the thing that unites or one of the things that unites this uh, set of passages is the theme of suffering. Job, of course, is a story about hmm. a suffering man who's eventually vindicated by the Lord. Paul is focusing throughout Second Corinthians on the suffering that he endures for the sake of Christ and for the hmm. sake of the gospel. And then, and particularly in chapter 6, that comes up uh, in uh, the context of his, he's commending his ministry as an apostle. And uh, we can make Mark 4 fit that. Uh, it's a storm story. Uh, Jesus demonstrates his power over the sea and the wind. Um, you have the disciples in a little boat, buffeted by the sea and the wind, buffeted by the world around them, 
uh, yet Jesus is with them, and because Jesus is with them, the storm will be calmed and they will get to their destination. So you can make that fit into the theme of um, suffering and uh, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But Steve, you had a different different way of thinking about how the texts fit together. <laughs> yes, I did. And um, so before, uh, well, first I'll tell you why I'm right and, <laughs> and what I think. And then um, I, I want to propose a, a, a thought which actually says why we're both right. And, um, and that might, might be helpful for all of us as we're sort of thinking about how to organize uh, thoughts about the relationship between different passages. So as Providence would have it, the first passage I, I read um, as I was thinking about this morning's um, podcast was uh, Job 38. And you'll know there, it's the beginning of the Lord's speeches to Job. And uh, much of the imagery, it strikes me, uh, is about house building, whether it's a physical house, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Or whether it's house in the sense of household, um, the uh, picture of the the world being brought forth from the womb, um, and it's God who is the midwife, God who is the one who uh, is the house builder in that sense. And uh, so that I had that at the centre of my um, thoughts, and then uh, off the back of that, looked at Second Corinthians six, where um, obviously there's a there's an Isaiah forty nine quote which dominates the 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 shape of the passage. But at the end, it's intriguing that Paul speaks as to his children. Um, uh, and so the childbirth image is picked up there. And in Mark 4, the third passage I looked at, um, it's a storm. Um, Lord speaks to Job out of the storm and so on. So I think it's quite clear that <laughs> that, that, way of, that way of organizing the passage is, is helpful. And I think, so why is it that both Peter and I are right and we don't have to have an argument <laughs> about this? I, I think sometimes we, we picture the relationship between different passages as um, in two mistaken ways. The first mistaken way is we start in a linear fashion with one and then we draw a line to the next and then we draw a line continuing to the next. And if you have the passages arranged in that order, uh, there's, with that picture of the relationship between them, there's only really one way of construing the connection. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, in an attempt sometimes... Well, that's the way you were doing it. That's, that's not the way I was doing it. <laughs> I remind you, no, that's the way that you started. No, but, now, but now sometimes in an attempt to be more fluid and to reflect all the different ways in which Scripture speaks to us, we, we say, well, let's organize it in a two-dimensional way where we have a... Instead of a line, you have a map on the surface of a, of a piece of paper, let's say. We've got one passage at the center and others... Uh, um, connected like in a spider diagram or, or a mind map kind of diagram and that's better because at least you can have multiple connections back and forth but the problem with that is if you've still got one passage at the center so I want to suggest an alternative third way of thinking about the connection between biblical texts and that is to imagine writing them all on the surface of a sphere and connecting them that way and the benefit of doing that is that you can rotate the sphere so that any one of the passages is at the center as you're looking at it. Um, and we should anticipate being able to view all of the other passages from the perspective of any one text. And Peter just happened to pick up the sphere with the two Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, 6 passage 
gazing at him and I picked up the sphere the other way around with Job 38 gazing at me. So and I think that is actually, actually reflects a, a biblical perspectivalism, uh, a sense in which there's many different ways of encountering God, there's many different ways of viewing the truth. And to acknowledge that there are many different ways of doing that does not um, violate the idea that there is in the end one truth. It's just it reflects the fact that we are finite and we don't comprehend all the truth simply and together at once as God does. We're we're compounded and we we live in time and space and we don't see everything clearly, but we've got to get at the truth somehow and we approach mm -hmm. it from one angle or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I, I did mention to our listeners uh, that you're, you are Dr. Jeffrey, your PhD is in physics, but I think they're picking up on uh, a somewhat more scientific direction of analogy and argument uh, in the last few minutes than they normally get from this podcast. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Um, and as, as, as you were discussing at the beginning, I, I realized that uh, I mean, we, we, could, uh, we could link up Job 38 and Mark 4, yep. not, a, not uh, directly in the way that you were doing so much as the, with the, uh, the wind and the storm, mm -hmm. which is definitely a connection there, but also the, the specific thing that's being born in uh, the latter part of our text in Job is the sea. Yes. It's the sea coming from the womb, yeah. and it's the Lord's control of the sea yeah. that's part of the demonstration of his sovereignty. Right. Um, so in that sense, this is just another way of gazing at the sphere that you describe. In that sense, Job uh, 38 and Mark 4 form a combination. Mm -hmm. yeah. Jesus is demonstrating that he is the one who, who was there when right. Job was not, right. and who is uh, the one who can command the sea and the waves and the wind, and they obey him. That makes Second Corinthians six the outlier, and you want right, to <laughs> right, exactly. And 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 the challenge is always then um, to stretch your reading of Scripture so right. that you can find ways of making all these different texts central um, in that sense. And then and to do that, that means you having to locate insights which have been foreign to you. Yeah. And then just and just to pick up the point about um, Mark four, that gives an extra sense of significance to the climax of that little short passage where they've been in a, a storm. And uh, you get the impression that they're afraid, but they, the text doesn't say so in as many words. Mm. It's only after the storm has been stilled and they realize, who is this? That the text at the end says they were afraid. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, though they were obviously afraid of the waves, the, the text highlights this is the one to be afraid of. Yeah, this right. is the one to fear. This is, this is the Lord um, embracing humanity and coming in the form of a man, but not shrinking himself down, expanding himself up so that we, right. and we right. can comprehend him in his glory in Christ. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 and that's, um, uh, I, I glanced at uh, Ricky Watts's book on the Isaiah's second exodus in the Gospel of Mark. Mm. And uh, he, he uh, notes that this um, is the beginning, and, and, uh, and other commentators also see uh, Mark 4.35 as the beginning of a section. Uh, just before that, uh, the First, just before you have this concluding statement about his parables, you have the chapter that's mainly parables and then tacked on the end, as it were. Right. You have this uh, story of Jesus' demonstration of his power of the sea and the, the wind. Right, right. It's really the beginning of, an, of a, section, a new, a new, uh, uh, a new uh, section of the Gospel of Mark that's not about Jesus speaking parable, but, but Jesus doing parables, the right. parabolic yeah. acts. Yeah. Um, his control over the sea and uh, the, the wind at the end of chapter 4, he's on his way to uh, the land of the uh, Gadarenes. The Gerasene demoniac yes. is going to greet yes. them when they get to the shore. Then yeah. he's going to encounter the woman with the... Uh, well, he's going to go to heal the little girl, raise the little girl that's died. Right, right. And he's uh, 
heals the woman with the flow of blood along the way. So you have a, a series of enacted parables right. yeah. that follow the, the verbal parallels. And you, and you notice then that how, how many times the, the narrative is punctuated by crossing the water. Three or four times right. in the next two or three chapters, it's right. they cross the water to the other side, Gadarene demoniac. Then they come back and they've got the next episode in right. um, uh, Mark six and so on. Yeah, which which obviously fits as, as Watts points out, uh, fits with the Exodus right, exactly. Exodus imagery. Uh, Jesus is taking the kind of a core of a new Israel through the through the dangerous waters and to mm -hmm. safety. Um, it's also, I mean, Jesus is sleeping. In the hull of a boat. Right. Does that remind you of anybody? Um, no. Does no, it remind you of anybody? Any, uh, I don't think, think that ever happened before in the Bible. I can't think of anybody in the, in the Bible, <laughs> in the womb of a boat. Literally, yeah. it's the, the belly of the boat, isn't uh -huh. it, in Johnny chapter 1? Yeah. Um, I think uh, so. Maybe so. I don't maybe so. Know. so then, then in the, if that's right, check your Hebrew gentlemen and ladies, but um, uh, if, if that's right, then what you've got is um, somebody else who is brought forth uh -huh. from... Uh, the just, bowels of watery chaos. You're just insisting on taking um, Job. I'm as insisting the, as on, <laughs> on Job as the, the, the your, conceptual your center. My view of the world, <laughs> this globe on which these texts are written, is, is, is the right one. Is, That's what should you're be saying. prioritized. That's okay. what I'm really saying. So I've yeah. come to Theopolis to tell you you've all been wrong. <laughs> but I'm glad that you have an Englishman in the room now to straighten things out. Yeah. Uh, we do have an Englishman as a regular guest, do you realize? Uh, which, yeah. Which is putting us, putting us right. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's been good. I'm, I'm glad you've seen the light now. Yeah. Uh, so, but the, the Jonah connection, I think, is, is interesting. One of the dimensions it brings out is uh, the, the, the birth idea. Uh, I didn't. I didn't remember that uh, jo Jonah is in. Uh, I meant Jonah. Um, Jonah is in the belly or womb of the I boat. I, I yeah, think it's right. Certainly, certainly in the womb of the fish. I think it's the. Womb. Yeah, and they, right. He goes into the belly of the fish. He's also at the bottom of the sea. So there is this kind of birth from. Birth, birth from, from the watery sea. chaos. Right. Yeah. right. Um, the other part of it is that Jesus is on his way to what seems to be a Gentile territory. He's going to encounter this demoniac. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a there's a Jonah theme in that too, because Jesus is the the prophet who's going to go and take the mm. take the gospel of the kingdom off into Gentile territory, which right. is what uh, Jonah is sent to do and is reluctant yeah, re to do. Reluctant to do, yeah. yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And you wonder how much as well, um, do, do you get, um, when the pigs are sent into the water as an act of judgment, and Jonah in that sort of perverse sense um, is thrown or causes himself to be thrown into the water. The fact that he's then um, uh, vomited out by the fish onto dry land, mm -hmm. it, it highlights a sense in which that's an act of mercy. It's a reversal mm -hmm. of judgment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's vomiting. V vomiting out and land is itself judgment language in relation to the curse of exile. But right. um, nonetheless, the Lord does to Jonah the reverse as an act of mercy of what happened to the pigs yeah. in the um, gathering demoniac yeah. account. Interesting to try to follow out the remainder right. of uh, the, the book of John and see if it, it uh, continues mm -hmm. through the next yeah. chapter or so of Mark's gospel. Um, you, you, uh, you keep insisting on going back to Job, no, so we'll, we'll go. You. We can stay in Mark's <laughs> gospel if that's where you want to be. <laughs> so, uh, uh, as you said, uh, this is the beginning of the Lord's response to Job. Yes. The beginning of the last last large section of Job where the, the Lord is addressing Job from the whirlwind. Uh, we've talked about Job before on this podcast, and uh, I think this is uh, some, some time ago when Jim, was, uh, Jim Jordan was able to be with us on a regular basis. And uh, we've discussed uh, something of the, uh, the structure of Job. I've been uh, taken by Toby Sumter's suggestion in, uh, uh, in his uh, Through Noise commentary on Job uh, about the uh, he sees a priest-king-prophet sequence going on in mm -hmm. Job. Um, 
Job is sacrificing at the beginning of the book to cover the sin, the, the possible sins of his children. Hmm. Uh, he's um, in a royal position with his three friends, his three advisors, uh, and uh, in conflict with them. And he goes through the, the long section of Job where he's uh, in debate with his advisors and defending his his uh, innocence before them. But his his aim throughout and his desire throughout is to appear before the Lord and be able to give an account before the Lord. Yeah. Sometimes he puts it in terms of having an advocate. He wants somebody to take up his cause for him. Yeah. Sometimes he's longing for an, an appearance, which uh, Toby points out is a, that's a, a, a desire for a kind of prophetic standing, being in the presence of the glory of the Lord, yeah. Yes, yeah. which um, Job finally does. does so I think that if you take, uh, take this scene in that context, then that, that changes the tenor of yeah. the Lord's response. Yeah. It's not this... The Lord's not trying to squash him, no, no, uh, yeah. teach him a lesson, this upstart. But no. it's it's a privilege for the Lord to directly yeah, address and, him. And, and moreover, it's a uh, Lord is addressing him precisely in preparation for his action. So in, in 38.3, dress for action, literally, gird up your loins like a man. And if you think of the resonances that that has in both the Old and New Testaments, it's gird up your loins is uh, Exodus 12. You know, you're out of here, into the wilderness, on the beginning of this adventure as the people of God. Mm. Um, it's in First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, mm. um, where it's, it, many translations have something like, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, um, set your hope fully on the grace that is being revealed to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, that begins the, the section in which Peter is galvanizing uh, his hearers for their lives of witness to the world, these isolated little communities up in what we now call Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, all on their own and, and no immediate support, and he's equipping them for lives of commitment and faithfulness. And so, in that in that sense, then you're right. It's not um, it's not the Lord bringing Job down a peg or two. Mm. It's him lifting him up a peg or two and showing him his own glory, so that he can be equipped, so to speak, to go out into the world and um, embrace mm. his task as a mm. prophet. Mm -hmm. In that sense, yeah. And the, so the the. Uh the task that he's being prepared for mm, in these yes. in the Lord's address to him is the task of, that's laid out in the final chapter of Job. Is that what you're thinking? Well, it, it, it's it's almost one of those stories where it um, it doesn't uh, narrate in the kind of detail you'd like to see mm -hmm. where he ends up next. In that respect, mm -hmm. it is like Jonah, mm -hmm. um, because everyone wants to know. Well, at the end of Jonah chapter four, does he repent or not? Mm -hmm. um, uh, now he knows about the Lord's mercy and he's been confronted with that. And where does he go? It's like the end of the book of Acts where Paul is uh, under house arrest but proclaiming the gospel to anybody who will come unhindered. And uh, and the thing that's missing there is the the gospel continue to grow and spread. Mm -hmm. And so it's as though the church is invited to fill in that part of the cyclical narrative that we're invited to take up the cudgels mm -hmm. and go out into the world and be that means by which the gospel continues mm -hmm. to grow and spread. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I wonder whether the unfinishedness in that sense, you don't see what Job does next except that he has his life restored and right. blessing restored. Right. Right. Um, you don't really see whether he, um, what, what kind of effect does he have on the people around him? Does mm -hmm. he gather his friends and, and mm -hmm. he teaches them and helps them and they how, how does he affect what you don't know? But yeah. it, the unfinished character of that story is supposed to prompt us to embrace that task yeah. ourselves. Interesting. So instead of reading Job, you're suggesting instead of reading Job as some, I think, do, as having a perhaps secondary uh, author, a second author, 
put this neat little conclusion on it to close out the story and make everything nicely symmetrical at the end. You're suggesting that there's more of an open-endedness to the book of Job than, uh, than that. That there's a, The Lord addresses him, but then leaves him to um, respond to that address. And we don't know in detail how he responds. Yeah, I don't know whether it would have to be an either or, right. but you've got you've got this really enticing conclusion um, written by whoever. And that's not a, that's not a concern. I don't think it needs to be a concern in, at this level. But um, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and all these sheep and cattle and um, uh, sons and daughters. And verse sixteen: After this, Job lived one hundred and forty years, a significant number of years, mm-hmm. um, both in length and in the actual figure you know seven times two times ten and he saw his sons and his son's sons four generations and he died an old man full of days so what's what is the life of job that that life of double fullness times ten mm-hmm. that that he uh, embraced after this mm-hmm. um, traumatic encounter with misfortune and then with god yeah. um and yeah so what 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 are you going to make that encounter you we who have been anointed as priests seated with Christ in heavenly places as kings, commissioned to go out into the world to speak and live before the nations. What are we going to make our new double fullness of life in Christ Mm -hmm. to be Mm -hmm. and to fill in the detail of Job chapter 4, verse 16? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just the the reference to a secondary, a second author wasn't really about authorship so much as um, it's it's common to read the the body of Job as having this kind of open-endedness even though the Lord appears and, and answers, there's debate about what the Lord is actually saying. I mean, um, who was the rabbi that wrote uh, why, why Bad Things Happen to Good People? This is, right. this is the Lord kind of kvetching about you know, how hard it is to run a world. You, you, yeah. you think yeah. you could do better, yeah. Job? Come on, yeah. you, you yeah. give and it then, a try. And then the end, somebody else tidying up the loose. <laughs> yeah, and then somebody, right, yeah. somebody comes in. It's, um, but yeah, so it's, it's an interesting way of reading it uh, that there's mm. a... There is a kind of open-endedness. There's obviously a closure. Right. You right. go to the the end of Job's life, but there's this um, mm. there's this open space that you don't know yes, yes. W- what else happened to Job, and yes. it does leave certain questions for the reader to right. how, it, how the reader is going to respond yeah. to. And, and the number of books of scripture where if you've been going through in a Bible study group and you get to the end and people say, so so how do we know what happened to Jonah, Paul, Job? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, no, we don't. And, and that question is a way in which yeah. the text of Scripture right. grips and interacts right. with us and right. lifts us up into its own uh, narrative so that we participate in it. Yeah, right, right. Uh, I want to go back to the uh, uh, another thing that you mentioned when you started talking about Job, the, uh, the construction imagery at the beginning mm, of chapter yeah. 38. Yeah. Foundations of the earth, measurements, stretching the line, sinking bases, putting up a cornerstone. Uh, this is creation as... Uh, uh, architecture as as, uh, as a uh, building project, and I think specifically specifically it's creation as a temple building project. So the Lord is building the cosmos as a mm-hmm. cosmic temple for the uh, pre- uh, so that it's a, a place of song. So the the conclusion of that op- those opening verses of verse seven, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. He he, he creates he builds this temple so that. Um, the morning stars and the sons of God can join together in yes. in uh, a sacrifice of praise. Hmm. Well, I wonder whether um, I mean, I'm sure you're right in in the sense of the the temple is in the uh, right there in the imagery, um, not least because who determined its measurements? It the the the, the buildings 
of which we're given measurements in Scripture are uh, holy places, predominantly, mm-hmm. if not entirely. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that we're not given the measurements. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't. Um, you don't have a couple of verses uh, pontificating on how vast they are mm-hmm. and giving you numbers. Mm-hmm. And so one wonders whether this is a an embryonic holy space. Mm-hmm. The earth, the earth, you'll know its measurements one day, and then you'll see that it is a holy place, right. um, a temple yeah. uh, setting. But at the moment, you only see that um, proleptically. Yeah. It's going to have measurements which you will know someday, yeah. Yeah. and the Lord has determined them. There will be a day in which holiness will fill the earth, but that day is not yet. Yeah, which is um, fulfilled ultimately in the last chapters of Revelation, where you do get measurements precisely of for the New the Jerusalem, which is the uh, new heavens and new earth. Right. right? right. And you're given detailed dimensions for all that. Um, well, I, I think we, we shouldn't give Paul short shrift since 2 Corinthians 6 is the key text of the set. It's the center. I'm now persuaded that uh, Dr. Lightheart is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Rebuked thus. I think we ought to spend a little bit of time. Uh, uh, you, you need to spend a little bit of time explaining why you say 2 Corinthians. I just think that's uh, obvious. Because <laughs> it's a bigger two. <laughs> I know it makes me sound like I... Yeah. Who is it who says 2 Corinthians? Uh, some, somebody, well, some great theologian in American public life yeah. said 2 Corinthians, uh, didn't he? There's somebody then. Anyway. Um, we'll, have to, we'll have to look that up because I, I sure can't remember who that was. You'd mentioned the uh, quotation in, in verse 2 uh, yeah, from yeah. Isaiah 49, which I, I, think, um, I think is a key. And I, again, I cheated a little bit because I looked, I, I looked at some, some uh, scholarship on it, which that's, I told you not to do. That's cheating. <laughs> I told you not to do. Uh, Mark Ginellette, who is, uh, teaches right over uh, next door at Beeson, just down the road. Right. Uh, and uh, I think it was his doctoral dissertation on um, the uh, Isaiah, the function of Isaiah and the servant song within this section of 2 Corinthians, maybe within 2 Corinthians as a whole. But he, uh, he was taking uh, 2 Corinthians 6.2 as kind of the key to understanding the whole surrounding Context, not just the beginning of chapter six, but all the other discussion that Paul has about um, his ministry, the sharing in the glory of Christ, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, mm. uh, and uh, saw that all in the light of verse two. Yes, um, which is it's uh, as you said from Isaiah forty nine. It's part of the larger context of uh, of the servant songs in mm. Isaiah, uh, and the, the particular thing that that uh, Genelette highlights that Paul is highlighting is uh, the, the timing. Uh, at an acceptable time, I listened to you at the day, at the day of salvation, I helped you. Mm-hmm. Um, but Paul's application of that, or Paul's interpretation of that, is to emphasize now. the now. Yeah. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And so the, the message that he's going to give about his own ministry and the, the, what, he, what kind of response he wants, comes, wants from the Corinthians yeah. is dependent on that eschatological reality that, mm-hmm. uh, as he says in earlier in the book, uh, in 517, um, whoever is in Christ, behold new creation. Yeah. That's now. Yeah. That's now. Uh, That's now. And it fits with how Paul clearly understands the, the seventh prophecy in Isaiah 49, in, if you think of in Acts 13, where he quotes it, um, uh, I've made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He quotes that in connection with his apostolic ministry. So clearly... Um, there's a Christological focus to the servant songs, obviously, but the Christological focus is ecclesial. It's, uh, um, it's Christ and then his servants, the apostles. And then by the time you get 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians um, 6, um, it's... <laughs> nice it, contextualization. Nice, it, it, it strikes me that um, 
what Paul's doing in the flow of the narrative of Second Corinthians and the flow of the argument, he's inviting the Corinthian church to join him as servants of the living Lord right. Jesus Christ. So right. there's this sense throughout Second Corinthians, isn't there, of a division and a degree of suspicion and hostility between right. the apostle and those he's um, speaking to. Um, now, the quotation from Isaiah 49, um, in a favorable time I listened to you, the you in Isaiah 49 is the servant. Mm-hmm. I think that's fairly clear from just the context, as mm-hmm. from the first seven verses into verse eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is addressed fairly transparently to the Corinthians. Mm-hmm. So Paul says then in verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Mm-hmm. And then he lists all the ways in which we commend ourselves, afflictions, suffering, calamities. Um, and then at the end, the, the application that he presses on their consciences is, is in effect, join us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I speak as my children, widen your hearts also. Mm-hmm. Embrace this calling to join us as servants of Yahweh Mm -hmm. in the Isaiah 49 Mm -hmm. sense, Mm -hmm. rather than being resistant to Mm -hmm. uh, the Lord's revelation in Christ and um, his servant's ministry. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, um, um, Jim Lett's phrase is uh, the servants of the servant. That's what the apostles are, the servants of the servant. But um, the Corinthians are also being Yes. called to be brought up into that. Yes, that servanthood Um, with the servant of the servant. Right. and with the with the Acts thirteen quotation, they're being called to be light in the light. Yes. To be lights in Christ. Uh, what what Second Corinthians or two Corinthians six, particularly, <laughs> particularly, uh, mutual deference here. This is a we're, we're acting like Christians. Um, the two Corinthians six passage is uh, uh, showing us that the existential form mm. that that light takes. Is sharing in the sufferings of Christ, right, right, right. as well as sharing in His glory. Right. Um, and, and you, you mentioned that uh, yeah, Paul is, says that we are commending ourselves as the apostolic we, as I've been saying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in previous yeah. uh, previous podcasts on sec- on two Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're commending ourselves, but he's commending himself in exactly the opposite way that at least some in the Corinthian church would, exactly, exactly. would want or expect. Yeah. Instead of seeing his afflictions, hardships, distresses, and so on. Being a disqualification, mm-hmm. he's constantly saying that those are qualifications, proof yes. that he's sharing in the in the yeah. ministry of the servant, yeah. Yeah. who is after all a suffering servant. Which fits with the, the whole ironic thrust of of the Corinthian um, correspondence, where um, the true wisdom is found in the foolishness of the cross, and to, true power is found in the weakness of embracing Christ's sufferings. And he's, the the Corinthians have um, embraced a worldly perversion of Christ-centered power and wisdom and knowledge. And Paul's effort is to flip it back the right way up so that power is weakness and wisdom is the folly of being despised by the world. Right. Yeah, and that, and that paradox is right in the, in the passage because after right. this list of um, the uh, sufferings that he endures for the sake of Christ, yeah. he goes on uh, impurity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, the word of truth, the power of God. Right, just throw by it in the, the middle By the weapons there. of righteousness. Yeah. And then at the end, verse 10, um, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, making many rich. Right. That's interesting. Not poor being rich, but poor making many rich. Yes. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. So the middle of that, those three, um, uh, I mean, there were some before, the, the kind of poles, opposite poles. It's just when you're expecting him to uh, encourage Corinthian 
prosperity. Mm -hmm. uh, let's pause a second. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the prosperity that comes when everybody in their poverty gives to one another. And yeah. then so you embrace that blessing by sharing in what others give to you. Right. And in that sense, you possess everything. Right, which, which is, uh, uh, that's another dimension or application of the sharing in the ministry of Christ. Correct. Who right. became poor that we might become rich. It's, as I'm looking at this, uh, again, it seems like you have this, um, the flow of this list in verses 4 through 10. Mm -hmm. uh, you start out with a list of hardships that moves into a series of qualities, positive yeah. qualities that he had. And then those get combined at the end where you mm -hmm. have these, this paradoxical Mm. Unknown yet well known, dying yet behold we live, punish it not put to death. Mm. So it's the negatives, the positives, and then he puts the, puts them right next to each yeah. other in these paradoxical um, combinations. Yes. And I, the the last uh, uh, the last few verses I I'm, I was really taken by. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times that Paul is speaking to children. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, uh, the specific way that he's taking that. Uh, is that he has he's opened himself up to the Corinthians. Uh, his his heart is open wide. His heart is expansive toward the Corinthians, which is expressed and and evident in the way that he speaks. Mm -hmm. He speaks freely and openly to them yes. as a uh, an expression of the open heartedness uh, that the open heartedness he has toward them. His desire is that they respond in kind. Yes. So. In that sense, he wants them to be children, that they'll be as open-hearted with him mm -hmm. and implicitly as free in their verbal response to him as he has been with them. Yes. And that, that's, the, that's kind of the ideal parent-child relationship, right. this yeah. open-heartedness, uh, this uh, free and open speech. But it's a mutual, it's a re reciprocal. Right, right. And that's, that's fruitful parenting, isn't it? It's, I mean, verse 11, it's our mouth is wide open, our heart is wide open. All that we have and all that we say is towards you. And the, the parent longs for the child to embrace that and to learn to speak by hearing the parents speak. And so it's as though Paul is like the father uh, trying to teach the Corinthian church how to speak again, how to mm -hmm. speak like Christ and how to be like Christ. Right. And, and I think that in the context too, part of that expansiveness, part of, maybe, maybe put it this way, part of Paul's hope for a reciprocal response from the Corinthians is, uh, comes out of the sufferings that he's endured. So that's, that's part of his, um, he's, he's writing to them, he has spoken to them, uh, but his sufferings on their behalf is part of, that's part of the evidence of his open-heartedness to them. Um, that's part of that's one reason why he's looking for that kind of response. Um, Jesus gave himself wholly for us, um, with the expectation and desire that we would respond with open-hearted devotion to him. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that's the kind of it seems to be the kind of dynamic. So the sufferings is the suffering Paul endures is part of that uh, open-heartedness and part of his open communication mm -hmm. with them. And I wonder whether it's, it's also um, something that might be fra framed as. As straightforwardly as an evangelistic mm. imperative so mm. um, Christ opens his heart and his mouth to his apostles his apostles open their mouths and their hearts to the church the church is to open their mouths and their hearts well, to whom to the world mm. um, uh, there's an outward flow from Christ um, mm. into the world in that way and in and that's how one opens one's mouth and heart to Christ it's by mm. 
carrying on his ministry as his body to the church and to the mm-hmm. world. To the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you were discussing the kind of parenting mm-hmm. um, implications of this, um, um, I think you can you can catch some Trinitarian mm-hmm. overtones uh, in this address too. Jesus, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Jesus talks about the Father uh, uh, showing him everything that he does, yep. the Father giving him yeah. all things, handing over all things to him. Uh, and that open-heartedness and free freedom, free gift-giving and free speech from father to son, uh, is, uh, that is reciprocal because Jesus mm-hmm. is the true son, the true child, uh, who opens his heart and uh, 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 entirely obeys his heavenly father. Yeah. So verse 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been uh, my wonderful, pleasure. Yeah, wonderful for it's you. It's been a delight uh, to, for you to be here, and uh, I hope we can rope you in in the future for another podcast. I'd be very happy to. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.